person. So thankful for all of you joining us online. Let me tell you what my worship experience was like with you today. Kip, love the songs. You and the praise team led us in. All six of them, they were great. They moved my heart. Willie and Jackie, thank you for the prayer. Uh, Jackie, thanks for your work that you do. Like it's, thank you just for giving us a little taste of what you're involved in every day of your life and how you embrace that as, as kingdom work. And I love the color coordinating y'all did today for your little focused prayer time. I got to worship today. And right in front of me is a row of three men. Lawrence, who I've known for a number of years here at Sycamore View, who, is, who deals with back pain, but you would never know it. He's a man who seeks the Lord, always carries his Bible, loves to study the Word. Right in front of me was Daryl Montgomery, who's been in this church since the doors opened in the late 70s. Daryl has lost two wives. Yet Daryl is a man that when I sat with him at lunch just over a year ago, what he told me is that he is still praying for God to help show him what his purpose in life is. And I can only hope, and Daryl, I'm not calling you old, but I can only hope when I'm your age, you're a little older than me, that I'm asking the same thing of God to the day I die, that God show me more of your purpose. It's a row of three men who are walking testimonies, and in between Lawrence and Daryl is my buddy Michael, who's only been at this church for a couple of years, but Michael is a man who is, God's delivered you from a number of stuff over the last few years. And if you get to worship next to Michael, this guy is, such a, is full of so much energy. I wish I could have gone to the Maverick City Kurt Franklin concert with you Friday night just to worship the Lord. But Michael is an assistant manager at a Burger King in Oakland. And not only is he helping to manage people to serve up burgers and fries and those unbelievable chicken fries. Those things are really good. Uh, but he is helping to serve up the kingdom of God. He wants that Burger King, the way he treats his employees, the way he treats people who come in there, he wants to treat them as an outpost of the kingdom of God. Like, what is it that God wants to do in and through that Burger King? And just being able to worship with the row of you three and to witness some of the things I was able to witness today, I just love this church. I love that I get to be a part of this church family. Uh, let me begin by standing on this statement, that the mission of the church that Jesus died to launch never changes. So there's not a day that Jesus goes back to the drawing board saying, maybe I, needed to maybe I need to redefine the work I did or redefine who the church is supposed to be. It never changes. So two Thursdays ago, before Roe versus Wade was overturned and Saturday after it was overturned, the mission of the church, it doesn't change. We're called to love one another. We're called to represent Christ. No matter where we are, no matter how long we live, this is who we are. This is what we do. And last week, if you just throw this image up here, I, can we just thank God for the worship leaders uh, uh, last week in this church? Can we just thank God for who led us in worship? I hated to miss this last week. Uh, uh, I love my family. We went away on a vacation. But just looking, and so those, are, those of you who are here, being able to witness the worship leaders last week, the diversity on that stage, not just in the color of skin, just as you begin to think about the moms and dads and families that surround those children, their experiences in life, it is a representation of what God is like. And I love that we're in a church that's trying to pour into a younger generation. One of our core values is that we strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into. There's a book I read this past week by, uh, called Next Sunday by a mother and daughter who wrote this book together. And they made this statement, we will almost certainly introduce our children to a small version of God they will outgrow, but let us not introduce them to a God they need to heal from. And when I think about how we're pouring into the next generation, I just love that statement. Not as a, not as a prophetic word, like using this to like whip you, but just a pastoral word of let's, let's hope and believe that God, that we're giving our children 
a big vision of God, a big version of God, but even that that we're giving them, that they will grow to get even a bigger version of God in their life. And that the way we represent Christ to the next generation will not be something that they're ever going to have to heal from. I'm grateful we're a church that gives stages to children and to men and to women. I was reading something this past week of a researcher in Canada, and this was not a faith-based research. She was just doing research, and it was on women empowerment, but what she wanted to do is discover, like, at what point for a woman does their confidence peak? So that was what her research was based on. At what age does the confidence peak in a female? And her research showed that confidence peaks at nine. And after nine, many women tend to drift toward insecurity. And that's where they have to fight insecurity. Now this is what her research showed. And what her research was showing is it's hard for anyone to become what they don't, what they are not able to see. So what we were able to see last week is that men and women and white and black get on this stage to help lead people closer to God and that the Spirit of God is at work in every single person in this church to serve as a minister to draw all of us closer to Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. I preached my first sermon when I was 10 years old. My dad's first preaching job was in a small little town called Crockett. At the age of 10 on a Wednesday night, I was assigned to preach, a ch- to, preach to this church. So we would uh, go do Bible classes and then we'd come in for like a 15-minute devotional and that was the first sermon I ever preached. I don't remember what, what I preached in the Bible, but I do remember the illustration I used. I was talking about what it means to have faith in God and trust in God. And the illustration I use is that I was at my grandparents' house, running around on their farm, and I had my shirt off, and a red wasp landed on my waistband of my shorts. And the illustration I use is I stared at that red wasp, and it stared at me. And in that moment, I had faith that God would not let it sting me. <laughs> and I stared at it, and it stared at me until it flew off. And then I said, in church, you need to stare at Satan and trust that God's not going to let him sting you either. And people thought the sermon was great. And you may hear that and you're like, man, that's like the best thing I've heard from you in years. All right. That, That was the sermon. I grew up in a small church for about five years. I consider Dallas to be my home. When you ask me where I'm from, I say Dallas. My family's still in Dallas. I love city life. I'm an urban guy. But for five years, and that's where I developed some of the accent that you hear, I lived out in the way out in East Texas, deep in the Piney Woods. Small town, small church. And I want to talk just for a few moments about small town, small churches. Now for Jesus, if I were to ask you where Jesus was born, you would say, it starts with the letter B, Bethlehem. If I were to ask you where Jesus was raised, you would say, Nazareth. But if I were to ask you what Jesus made his home, like where he made his home, it was a town called Capernaum or Capernaum. You could choose to use three syllables or four. I'm just grateful that on the day of judgment that God's not going to like hold up cities that we read in the Bible and have to pronounce them correctly, all right? Uh, I'm going to use the term Capernaum, all right? A little bitty town. About 1,500 people, maybe 2,000 people, small town right off the Sea of Galilee. And here's what we read, like the Bible tells us this, and sometimes we may overlook it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town, which was Capernaum. In John chapter 2, verse 12, it says, After this, after he turned water into wine, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and sisters, and there they stayed for a few days. So of all places, for Jesus to choose to make his home for the last few years of his life, it was this little bitty town called Capernaum. Why did Jesus not choose Jerusalem? The big city, the place where all the religious leaders and religious conversations took place. Like he, he didn't choose to be in the big city in the middle of urban life, shaping the temple and everything around the temple. He chose to live in this little bitty town just north of Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. So I lived a few years, five years in Crockett the Elementary School. Crockett was named after Davy Crockett, a guy who died in Alamo and I can't remember what state he came from, all right? It may have been, may have been South Dakota or, you know, West Virginia, whatever. The only state that even comes close to, like, holding the Alamo up is this great event. It's, it, you know, other than Texans, there are people from Tennessee, right? You claim victory. And what's so crazy is you talk to people outside of Texas and Tennessee, and they think that we won the Alamo, that we didn't lose. Like, we talk about it all the time. It was, it was called Crockett, this little bee town, because the story is that when Davy Crockett was on his way to the Alamo, he stopped in Crockett to get a drink of water, and now they have named a town after him. It was a small little town. I remember going on three field trips. We would take a field trip to the livestock, to the rodeo, because they thought if we lived there long enough, we would probably work there. We also took a field trip to McDonald's for the groundbreaking of McDonald's, because I, I was living in this town that had a Sonic, a Dairy Queen, a Pizza Hut, and if you wanted to sit down with a nice dinner, like go celebrate your 50th anniversary and dress up, Golden Corral was a place you would go. Like, that was it. Uh, and when McDonald's came to town, it was a big deal. They let us out of school. We took a field trip to watch the groundbreaking of McDonald's. Like this, we had made it as a town. And then we would take a field trip to what is now a water fountain where they believe Davy Crockett had a drink of water on his way to the Alamo. In this little bitty town, I remember one of my neighbors, he cheated on his wife, the whole town ended up knowing about it. One of my good friends, his dad was the judge of the town. He ended up cheating on his wife, leaving his wife for his secretary. Everybody in the town knew about it. When you live in a town of six to 7,000 people, everybody like knows everybody. You know who the superintendent is. You know who the principal is. You know who, the, you know who works at Dairy Queen. You know the judge because the judge probably also owns the antique, antique store and is probably also the football coach and is also the volunteer fire, fireman. Like it's just in small town. That's just how it goes. And you don't need social media to spread news all over the town because you have church prayer lists <laughs> and women Bible studies and barber shops, right? Like that's how the news went everywhere. So you, some of you, how many of you lived in, in places smaller, grew up in towns smaller than 5,000 people, right? You know what I'm talking about. Small places, people know people. So when, I, when you think about Capernaum, this little bitty town of 1,500, 2,000 people, Jesus chose to make a home in a place where everybody would have known each other. They, they knew this. And, and this is a prophecy that was fulfilled by Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, he writes this. Isaiah chapter 9, and he gives it a name. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. And in Matthew, he quotes this. 
Matthew says, leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So when you think Capernaum, I don't want you to think just backwoods Arkansas. All right, I don't want you to think some, some places disconnected from other things happening in the world. There was a major road that went through Capernaum by the way of the sea. A major road. And Jesus chose to make that his home. This was a place of great importance. And it was in what, is, what many call like the Orthodox Triangle. If you go to this map right here and in your Bibles, some people call it the Evangelical Triangle, the Orthodox Triangle. The bottom left, you have Capernaum. Then you have Chorazin, Chorazin and then you also have Bethsaida. And when it came to the ministry of Jesus, the large majority of his miracles and teachings took place in that little triangle. Those three little towns are only about three miles from each other, and Jesus did so much work in that little place. Right there in that triangle, you had fishermen, farmers, merchants. You also had a military center for Rome, and you had an area that was very, very religious. So just think about the occupations I just told you about. You had fishermen, you had farmers, you had merchants, you had a military center of Rome. You had Jews, you had some Gentiles. You had people who were very religious. One of the largest synagogues in that area was in Capernaum. You can go and you can stand in that place today. So there in that little triangle, you had people who were some of the poorest of the poor. You also had tax collectors. You had people who worked for Rome. So in that little place, even though it's a town of only about 2,000 people, you had people who experienced life in a lot of different ways. And here are just a few things that happened in the ministry of Jesus there. Look at this. In this little area, Jesus drove out a demon in a synagogue. If a demon showed up in synagogue and Jesus drove it out, don't you think that is something that everyone else in town would have heard about? He healed Peter's mother-in-law in that little city, which this is a place where Peter lived. You also have, he healed a centurion servant, somebody who was a non-Jew. He cured many and drove out many demons in this place. He healed a paralyzed man, the story you read about in Mark 2 and Matthew 9 of the, the friends who went and dug a hole in the roof. It happened in this little town of Capernaum. It's where he called Levi and Matthew, and not only that, it's where at least four other apostles lived. It's not where they grew up, but it's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John, it's where they called home. At least five apostles were from that place, lived in that place. He cured a man with a shriveled hand in Mark chapter 3. So just what you see right there on the screen, think about the impact that had in that little bitty town of Capernaum, 1,500 to 2,000 people, where Jesus came into that place, healing people of diseases, driving out demons, cure, like these miracles that would have been told by so many people, right? And not only that, it's where Jesus also showed people what a great teacher he was. Just look at some of the teachings that happened there. Four of the major teachings in the Gospel of Matthew happened in this little town, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. 
Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus talks about what it means for people to be on mission. Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Matthew 18 and 19 happened right there in this area. It's where Jesus gave one of the best teachings on leadership in Mark chapter 9, when he talked about who is the greatest of all, and then Jesus went on to challenge them. If you want to be the greatest of all, you are to be the servant of all. It's where Jesus talked about the temple tax, which Mitch preached on last Sunday in Matthew chapter 17. It's where that big teaching in John chapter 6 about Jesus being the bread of God and the bread of life, it's where that took place. And it's where this teaching of discipleship happened in John chapter 6 at the very end. And here's what happens right here if you go to this next slide. The very end of John 6, it says this. Jesus said all this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? And then a few verses later, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In this little town, Jesus showed himself to be healer, teacher, redeemer, reconciler. It didn't matter if you were Jew or non-Jew. Jesus healed diseases. He cured, he cured people. He drove out demons. The impact Jesus had on that little bitty town, the way Jesus... like, think, Was there anyone in that town that was not impacted by Jesus' ministry there? Because think about it, I mean, this is back in a time when your theology was, if you are demon-possessed or if you have some kind of illness, it's probably either because of sin in your own life or sin someone else has committed close to you. So it's like God may be against you. But Jesus came and helped restore people physically and socially. Like he totally flipped that place upside down. And there are a couple of things we learn about the heart of God just by Jesus choosing to invest and to live in a place of Capernaum. And something we learn about God is this. As Jesus stepped into this earth, right, one thing is this. Jesus steps into places and steps into the lives of people that many of the other leaders in the world wouldn't step into. There's no place that Jesus wasn't going to step into to bring his kingdom. And while many other leaders in the world and religious leaders didn't see that triangle or Capernaum as a place that they need to go invest or they need to go invest in people there, Jesus did. He stepped into the lives of the sick, of those who were overcome by evil. He stepped into that place and redeemed it forever. And we also see that for Jesus, he stepped into places to bring value and dignity right, to everyone, value and dignity to everyone. And here's where, here's where it gets a little sad, right? Because the last thing Jesus has to say about Capernaum is this. And it's in Matthew chapter 11. Of all the things Jesus did in that little town, it says Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And I don't see Jesus saying this with anger as much of just sadness. But woe to you, Chorazin. And woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
Will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained in this, to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Isn't that, isn't that sad? Of all Jesus did to change the lives of people and to redeem people in that little town, the word he ends up offering to them is, this is a place that isn't repenting, like you're not embracing me as the king of your life. Which goes to show you that God's not, God's not looking for people whose eyes are open just to see a miracle. And God's not looking for people whose ears are open just to hear a good teaching. God is looking for people whose hearts will surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Whose hearts will repent to turn to Jesus and to claim Jesus not just as a great healer and a, and a great prophet, but as, as the King and the Lord of all. So maybe a couple of things you could take from this. One is, and I preached two weeks ago on rejection. But if you have experienced rejection in your life, especially rejection from your home, Jesus knows what it's like. He's walked the road. So embrace and choose Jesus to be a companion as you deal with some of your own rejection in life. And the other is this. And I mean this as a pastoral word, not a prophetic word, all right? I just want to bless and encourage you. But we have a world full of people who have either rejected Jesus or have chosen not to step closer to Jesus. And sometimes the reason is is because the church got in the way of them seeing Jesus. Because the way they've seen some of us, and I'm talking about just Christians throughout the world, the way they've seen us live out our faith doesn't give them a good depiction of who Jesus is. So as we live this week, and you go to camp, and we have opportunities this week that are right in front of us, whether it's at Burger King, at Le Bonheur, or wherever else we may be, may we not be the reason people don't get a good look at who Jesus is. I was reading a book this past week, and I came across this quote. And it's somebody who has struggled in their life of embracing the church or running from the church. And here's what they ended up saying. How baffling you are, O church, and yet how I love you. How you have made me suffer, and yet how much I owe you. I should like to see you destroyed, and yet I need your presence. You have given me so much scandal, and yet you have made me understand sanctity. I've seen nothing in the world more devoted to obscurity, more compromised, false, and I have touched nothing more pure, more generous, more beautiful. How often I have wanted to shut the doors of my soul in your face. And how often I have prayed to die in the safety of your arms. No, I cannot free myself from you because I am you, although not completely. And besides, where would I go? So may God bless this church as we go out this week. I want to ask Joe Ward, one of our shepherds, if you'll go ahead and come to the front. Joe's going to have our prayer here in a few minutes. And Joe's also up here to receive you for prayer. And I don't know who the shepherd is in the back, but we have a another shepherd, if you'll go ahead, whoever you are, go to the back to receive people. And as we move around here in just a few moments for communion and for just 
focus time of prayer. Our elders are here. Can we pray for you? Is there anything we can do for you? Our elders are here to receive you. If you're online or in the house today, on our website, there is a connect card that gives you opportunities, just a way to let us know if there's anything we can do for you. And here over the next few minutes, we have an opportunity to do something we do every week, just to move to tables, to take the bread and the cup together as a church. We are in this together. We move to God together. And may we remember that the one who was rejected did not take his eyes off of his focus. He knew his assignment. He did this for us. And may the bread and the cup today call us to be God's people in the world. No matter the outcome, we are called to be faithful. May we close our eyes, bow our heads. Do you want to open up your hands just to receive from God today? Open up your hands. And God, today in this place, we pray for your spirit over the next few minutes to tend to our souls. God, may we not be afraid to repent of the things that are keeping us from you. As we take the bread and the cup, may it give us courage to move forward and out of this place today to represent you in ways that brings you great glory this week. For all you have done in and through Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen. Please make your way to our six tables in the room for the bread and the cup.